Welcome to the Electric Monks Podcast. Episode 4, Dirk in the 90s. Hello and welcome back to the Electric Monks Podcast. I'm Ed. And I'm Nemo. So, before we start proper into uh, our main subject today, which is uh, three things, in fact. Uh, I want to talk about some news in the modern world of the Jamie adaptations, which is obviously to do with the 2016 BBC America show. It got cancelled at the end of last year, and now a year later, we've got uh, some pretty exciting news that comes via the producer of the show and the uh, writer of the uh, short-lived Dirt Gently comics, Arvind Ethan David. He's tweeted out a picture of Sam Barnett, who was obviously the actor who played Dirk in the 2016 series, here recording something in an ADR booth. He's got a script with him, and the tweet simply reads, oh, I wonder who's in this ADR booth. And, uh, and then he's put in the hashtag, uh, new case, which seems to suggest that there's uh, some new story or something new definitely being worked on in the, in that show's universe, which is it's starting to find out, I guess, at least that... Uh, because I've been sort of been teasing he's been working at something, but this is the first time we've seen anything tangible. It definitely piques everybody's interest. Uh, there's There's been a positive reaction I've seen on the various you know, uh, subreddits and Facebook Dirk Gently groups. Uh, everybody's a bit, ex- you know, has that reaction like, oh, that, that sounds great. And yeah, that's It's the first bit of really positive news we've got yeah. in all Obviously, Kickstarter hasn't launched yet for the comics because Arvind has sort of teased in the past that his idea was he was going to re- relaunch another round of the comics. And then after that, there was the possibility of getting the voice actors together and doing a sort of audio play version of or continuation of the show from where it left off at the end of the second season. And I have a feeling that this might be Sam Barnett going in to record a trailer personally. For either for the show or for maybe Arvind has done a draft of the comic already and he's done a sort of... Because the fact that it's ADR makes me think that there's some kind of visual element to this. Definitely that it's not just Sam recording audio. Yeah, I certainly hope there's more to it than just recording a trailer, that it's that it's your full episodes or there's, there is that uh, oh, it could lead multimedia to uh, element, to use a very 90s term. Yeah, it's all mm. multimedia now. Indeed. Right, so um, so that's very exciting, and we'll we'll see if we can find out more about that as and when we get it. But anyway, uh, back to we got we better we better get back to uh, the period we're going to cover now, which is after the first two books were released, which is uh, I would say about uh, nineteen eighty nine through to uh, two thousand six, two thousand seven, or say, or just the early two thousands in general. Um, so it's basically the nineties, <laughs> and yeah. um, I think the first. Uh, after the book's came out, the first sort of bit of media to feature Dirk Gently or the characters from the story was uh, an episode of the South Bank show, which is a little bit odd because it's this. So it's this sort of art show, and it, this edition of it, this episode of it, which aired in 1992, was all about Douglas Adams. And so it's a, it's part mostly it's a sort of documentary featuring sort of lots of interviews with Douglas and his friends like Stephen Fry, Richard Dawkins, all pop up and. You know, all his publishers and close friends and stuff. And then the other half of it is a drama, which which is sort of interspersed in between that, which is mainly it is uh, uh, characters from Hitchhikers and characters from the Dirt Gently books sort of 
going into our world, mainly it's them interacting with each other and trying to, trying to figure out what the hell is going on in this uh, weird world where they're fictional characters in this books that Dovis has written. They interact with each other and they interact with our world, but they don't, and they don't have the ability to interact with people in our world. So they, uh, there's a scene where Ford actually, I think it was Ford, enters the room where Douglas and somebody are talking and, and there's nobody there, but he leaves the room and he can see I them. I think it was Arthur. It uh, might yeah. have been Arthur, yeah. And he can hear them and he can see them through the, the window, but when he enters the room, it's, it's an empty room. They, through their plot machinations, uh, get Douglas starting to write again, and, and it was about the writing of Mostly Harmless. Exactly. So the main crux of it is sort of about writer's block, and it's sort of interesting to view in retrospect because when Douglas was after Doug, Mostly Harmless was released, Douglas sort of said, that, oh, it was a bit of a crap year, really. I think he sort of said that was sort of the sole highlight, one of the few highlights of that year was making this uh, special program with the uh, Southbank show. It did look fun. Indeed, yeah. And um, the interesting thing about it from a Dirk, purely Dirk Gently perspective, although I think it's good to see um, the Hitchhiker characters from the t- being reprised by the TV show actors, you know, Simon Jones, of course. Always a very good author. And even Marvin as well, Super Mordor in his voice. The funny thing about it is they didn't have the uh, the whole body of Marvin. They just had the head. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he, he uh, yeah, he jokes that he's in a, a trench coat because the rest of his body, all the parts fell off because you know everybody leaves him and you know he's, he's been, yeah, you know, <laughs> morose, yeah, yeah, everybody leaves me or even my body fell off and it was a a workaround for having lost the prop, which they did find uh, after that because they used it in the movie. Anyway, the, uh, the thing that, inter- that actually interests us is the um, segment of it in which uh, there's effectively, because the Dirt Jack Nikanka is apart from, interestingly, the electric monk who features at the very beginning, he's sort of the first character that's introduced to us through a, it's, it's a passage that mirrors the book very closely. Obviously, he's talking about and um, or the monk believing the, the valley and everything else in it to be pink. And then it says that, oh, but there was another problem that was uh, perplexing him, which was, of course, uh, he also believed that uh, Douglas Adams was working on a new book. <laughs> and uh, then it cuts to Douglas looking a bit perplexed. Yeah, so there's a sort of almost sort of self-deprecating kind of humour quite throughout from Douglas especially. Yeah, I, th- I think they had some fun in that regard because they, they took elements of the book and crafted it to the narrative needs of the South Bank show at the time. Uh, so you end up with this alternate type of uh, alternate universe of Dirk Gently events. Yeah, if, if you're going to try and argue how it fits canonically into uh, all the other versions of everything. I think Ford even gives a fairly decent explanation in the episode, in the show itself, uh, where he's explaining to Arthur about um, different realities, which again ties into the plot of Mostly Harmless yet again, and about how in there's one reality where there's an author who's written about you. So does that mean that you're a fictional character, the author's written, or you're a real character, this author has just so happened to write about this identical story to your life? And Arthur predictably doesn't really get the concept and he's reading through, it's like, oh, so he's a biographer fellow, is he? Yeah, <laughs> Arthur this sort of plays up to Arthur's sort of uh, rather vain element of himself. That he thinks someone's been going around and just chronicling his entire life. He thinks that Douglas Adams is some kind of fan or something. Yeah. And, um, and of course, that's chatted when he goes. I think when he goes up to the window, and he's being interviewed, and uh, Douglas starts like insulting Arthur, and then Ford goes up and he starts like 
prowling on about how he doesn't like characters that know everything and that's why he doesn't like forward and <laughs> yeah i always thought that was quite a funny scene anyway um there's a passage in it a bit later where uh, arthur starts reading a holistic detective agency and then suddenly richard we don't know it's richard mcduff until he walks up to um uh, Dirk Gently's office in Islington, which has got the brass plaque on the front and everything. And then we realize, ah, this is the passage from the book. And so this is, and it's interesting because the guy who plays Macduff is actually the same guy who plays uh, the electric monk. I believe it's Paul Shearer is his name. I've no idea. That's, that's a, uh, it's a piece of trivia. I only realized recently, even though I first saw this episode of the South Bank show many, many years ago, I didn't pick it. It was the same actor. So the passage is literally the Apart from the book, when Macduff first goes to meet uh, Dirk in person, and obviously his secretary is angry and walking out, and they've they've done a pretty good job in terms of making the or the office, which is a relatively small set, obviously look um, reasonably yeah. accurate. Uh, but they they covered the scene uh, almost, you know, lifted it directly from the book, word for word, and and uh, action scene for action scene. You're for uh, secretary storming out and scribbling uh, the argument scribbled on the poster and and then the scene of uh, Macduff uh, talking to Dirk via handwritten notes while Dirk is uh, on the phone to a client. To several clients, in the, fact, he's on and off. Several clients, yes, yes, that's right. I think it's a fairly good scene to have filmed uh, for the purposes of the show because it's, it's, a, it's a fairly televisual scene uh, in that regard. And Douglas has that history in TV, so... Yeah, and it also it's a good scene for getting across um, the character of Dirk as as he is presented in the books, I think. And Michael Boyle does a pretty good job of, uh, obviously because it's based on him, so there is that kind of rather interesting element of it. And I, yeah. I feel like he does a pretty a pretty uh, decent job. I've always wondered, actually, what it'd be like if Michael Boyle would have maybe ever would... Because um, I'd always imagined if the TV show had gone on, then there might have been one or two references to what had come before. And it would have been really nice in my opinion to have uh, michael bywater make a sort of cameo appearance maybe not as dirk or or even like an alt- alternate version of dirk but just as some random background character or something i i think they could have had a lot of fun with that i guess if the audio plays happen it could be even easier to have a sort of multi-dirk story but uh, i'm getting ahead yeah. of myself anyway thanks to the south bank show the small segment i thought was very good but do you think it they in the 90s, if Dirk Gently had been popular enough that they could have done a TV series based on either the first book or maybe both books like they did with the radio series a few years later? I think the first book would have been really difficult because of its uh, Doctor Who uh, plot background. Uh, I don't know if there would have even been rights issues with doing that. It's an adaptation, effectively, of those of uh, Doctor Who City of Death and Doctor Who Sharda. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, they're both really good Doctor Who stories, both written by Douglas Adams uh, and filmed as Doctor Who stories. So redoing, you know, Dirk Gently's Solicited Detective Agency, the novel was those two stories adapted into a non-Doctor Who setting to redo it back as TV. Uh, it could have been fun if, if rights and legal issues ended up not being a concern. It could have been fun because they could have had all these hints it was an issue for that scene in South Bank show. That that wasn't any of the the Doctor Who based plot. Yeah, there was no Professor Cronotis. There was no yeah. uh, City of Death ending. Yeah. yeah, as soon as you have those plot elements and character elements that are that are lifted from 
Sharda or City of Death, then you know, maybe there would have been issues. They could have done the second book, though. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But that you know, you'd still have to introduce the characters, and at that point, you're starting to get into it's a it's a much different beast than the books to start with. Mm. Not necessarily a bad thing, just it's more work. Yeah, you would. Uh, I I I'm not sure they could quite have done uh, four and all the gods justice or their forced destruction no. and stuff uh, in the nineties. Yeah. They they could probably use CGI, but um... CGI for TV series in the nineties was really really primitive. I mean, it was pretty primitive for movies, but more so for TV. So, yeah, I don't think it would have been viable. So obviously we had hitchhikers and dirt characters interact with each other, which is something we, I don't think we have seen before or since this uh, special. So do you think that that should happen more often? I'm thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very much a, uh, not a fan of the strict canonical point of view of things. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that annoys me about Star Trek to use a completely different universe for a moment. Uh, and is part of what I enjoy about both Hitchhikers and Doctor Who is that there isn't that strict canonical view of what's being told. And yeah, there's a lot more freedom in what, in the sort of stories that you can tell in that sense. Yeah. Each adaptation can be its own thing and contradicting past versions of what you've told isn't frowned upon and the fans don't get in a huff about it in general. Sometimes they do. Uh, and it means that, you know, universe crossovers like this are a lot more likely to be accepted as, hey, that's neat, uh, rather than have fans sit there and tear their hair out about, oh, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't occur in Arthur's timeline. You know, <laughs> Zaphod would never do that. You know, uh, Dirk Gently would be too busy trying to you know, solve the thing. And he's like, no, nah, it's a lot easier to just go with it. The surprising thing about this is that there isn't a lot of Dirk in this, actually, because he shows up in that scene, with, which is sort of word for word from the book. And then he shows up a bit later in, and I like how Michael Boyle has got the classic red hat on and stuff, and all the yeah, they're all described in the book. They, they they sing a band performing, I believe, which is obviously yeah, Richard Monk is uh, performing, and I, and I like because it's just really goofy and just I I actually feel that if these characters did get together, I think they would just have a party, <laughs> especially if uh, they knew that the person that created them was just making more stuff. Because I think mean, that is probably yeah. a decent cause for celebration. And um, it also means they can go home. Yeah. <laughs> the, the character's interaction with the documentary was very much focused on Ford and Arthur and how they discover that this Douglas Adams guy is writing their story and that they're fictional characters in Douglas's works. And then the Dirk Gently uh, scene that's, t that's lifted from the novel is kind of a, just its own thing on the side and then Dirk appears with everybody else at the end. There is that sense of, well, we have to include Dirk just for uh, covering off and acknowledging that Douglas has done more than just hitchhikers. Uh, but I don't think they really had a, had a sense of how to integrate Dirk and Macduff into the story. So they just filmed a bit from the book. and Well, um, it would have been difficult because <laughs> obviously the same actor plays Macduff as the monk and they know the monk yeah. seems to be the slightly more well-known character. And also got Richard Dawkins, who's got a bit more to say about the monk. So I think they just sort of kept him in. Yeah. And I do like the interaction we get when Arthur first meets the monk and the monk is showing off all the different things that he can believe for Arthur and offering his services. And Arthur's just really sort of dismissive and doesn't really know what's happening. And he's like, oh, who are you? And 
the monk says something like, I'm a fictional character who believes things. Uh, what, do, what, do, who are you? what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> we should move on to the thing that you're more familiar with that I haven't actually had a chance to see yet, which is the uh, the play, the Dirk Gently stage play. So for those that don't remember, I mentioned this in the first podcast, but I'll recap it now, is that uh, when um, the stage play started with um, Arvind Ethan David, who was... Uh, when he was a student at school, he was a big fan of Hitchhikers and he found out about uh, the Dirt Gently books. Uh, I think either just as they were released or just after this, this is like a secondary school. And him and his friend uh, James Goss staged the play. And it was this fairly uh, amateur thing. And it was very, uh, they sort of describe it as quite chaotic and nonsensical. What ended up happening was they went to Cambridge together, I think. And then they decided to do it. Uh, well, not not they didn't do it for real before, but to do it on a a bigger stage and do a more official production. And the problem was here that uh, they needed the rights to do it, so they wrote to Douglas Adams and his agent Ed Victor. And the response they got back was along the lines of, oh, "We think it's unadaptable, but you can give it a go. You've got our blessing." So, and so eventually Douglas uh, went to see it in um, the midnight. I think it was first stage in the. 95, I think, was when the first official on stage for the production was held in Cambridge. And Douglas went to see it and uh, really loved it, apparently. And it led to him actually offering a job to um, Arvind Ethan David a bit later down the line with his uh, .com uh, company. The play has uh, since been done quite a few times in the UK and sort of it's worldwide. It's been done in the US and, of course, in Australia by a few uh, amateur productions, which uh, you've seen, Nemo, as you mentioned before. I, I did see one... Uh three years ago, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, specifics, I, I can really only tell you my, my vague recollections of the, um, of the impression that I got rather than specifics about the plot. Uh, and the, the impression that I got was that it was a cleverly done adaptation. There were some fairly major chunks of the book that they cut out, uh, but they crafted the, re- the remaining bits together quite well. They, the time travel elements were, from memory, were quite downplayed. Uh, but there was a there was definitely a strong sense of uh, weirdness and uh, what the hell's going on in the early parts that then coalesced together in the later part of the the play. And you know, it did have that Dirk Gently feel to it. Yeah, there was. Um, uh, I think I've read that it was one of the first plays that ever used a computer animation. I, I I believe it's for for the more sort of uh, sci-fi parts, let's say the time travel. Yeah. I I guess we should talk about some of the changes, maybe in terms of the narrative. From what I've read, I've not got them noted down, but from memory, I think uh, the the electric monk is cut out completely. Yeah. So in so in instead of him being the murderer of Gordon Way, they make Michael Wenton Weeks the murderer and sort of tie it into the uh, yeah ancient mariner ghost possession plot. I guess. Yeah, which. Which is one of those things where it's a completely different take on the character, and yet it simplifies the plot in a way that is still consistent to itself. So yeah. I think that was well done. Uh, it is possible to buy the script from Amazon. I think it was. Yeah, and uh, several other places. Takes money. Samuel French. Yeah. yeah. It, it takes money that I don't have it, uh, but now <laughs> that I know that I can, I will be doing so at some point in the future uh, to go along with my collection. Oh, here's a list of the divergences from the novel, and oh, it, and this is on the um, the old Douglas Adams 
Life DNA and HTGT website, which uh, has a page on the play, and it says uh, purists should skip this section to prevent unnecessary nosebleeds. So, uh, one, the electric monk is gone. Sorry. Two, the dodo is gone. Really sorry. <laughs> oh dear. Well, uh, life imitates art. Uh, I mean, art, life, life imitates art imitating life. So, um, the number of alternate universes traversed by the story is reduced by two. Okay. So I think that means that they, um, if I remember correctly from what I read, the paradoxes involving uh, Coleridge were, because at the beginning of the book, we start in a slightly different universe where Coleridge wrote a much longer version of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And so I, I presume in this, it's the uh, version of the poem that we know quite well. Instead, Michael Winter Weeks is now multiple murder, as I mentioned, because he doesn't just murder mum for taking away Fathom, his beloved magazine, from him. He actually murders uh, Gordon White as well. Oh, and Bark lives, so Bark exists in the first place. That was the other paradox, I think. Yeah. Where his music sort of came out of nowhere because uh, Reg copies it from the Silexian ship uh, because he knows Richard likes the music as a sort of favour to him, so some of it will survive. Yeah, that's right. And that becomes Bax music. Obviously, it makes sense sort of so... The Electric Monk, because you can't really have a guy on a horse on stage, unless it's like the weird horse that he used for War Horse, but I don't think they would have had that at the time. I, if, if, it's a, if you're willing to put enough money into a stage production, you can do almost anything, but for what started off as a school production and university uh, play production, that would have been, um, I think it was a smart move to avoid that complexity. So my last question on the play very quickly is... Um, do you think there should ever be a play version of the BBC America adaptation? Probably a altered version of it, obviously, because it wouldn't. It just wouldn't work cutting between ten different storylines. I think it would have to be yeah. a slightly simplified version. Or do you feel that would be sort of sacrilege that if you're going to do a play, it should be something that was originally a novel, not a TV series? No, it's def- definitely not sacrilege. It's this goes back to what I was saying before that they. The freedom from being tied down to what's canonical is one of the things that I really enjoy with uh, Douglas Adams's works, and I extend that to Dirk Gently as well as Hitchhikers. And you know, if anybody's going to be that sacrilege, you can't do that to Dirk Gently, then they're probably not going to have liked the BBC America TV series in the first place. Uh, anybody that enjoyed the TV series, I would hope, are going to be... Uh, accepting of all sorts of weird and wonderful adaptations in all sorts of media. I did see something um, interesting. Uh, I saw a, it was some, I think it was a Welsh drama group, and they were doing an amateur production of uh, Dirk. And one of them, uh, one of the people in it had reached out to Sam Barnett asking for advice. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that Sam Barnett's... He was definitely supportive, but I think he said something like, uh, be brilliant and uh, everything is connected, uh, you'll be fine. <laughs> and also I noticed that the person playing Dirk in this production was dressed sort of like the uh, BBC America Dirk. So he had the yellow j- jacket on and everything. The the play was written by uh, Arvind with James Goss. And Arvind, of course, has gone on to do many more Dirk Gently things, which we'll get onto in later podcasts. James Goss uh, has also had quite a career. And one of the things that he's done recently was the novelization of City of Death. Ah, yes. So uh, he's sort of involved in a little bit in some Doctor Who things. 
Yeah, yeah. So they and I'm pretty sure James Goss has has uh, done things. I, he may have also adaptation of Shada. I'm not sure. I don't have a copy of that next to me to reference. But yeah, they they've both gone on and been obviously heavily influenced by Douglas Adams's work, uh, and and gone on to bigger things. There's, uh, I think that's very cool that it shows that you know, the, this play is a uh, historical artifact in a in a manner of speaking of. Uh, the creative life of these two, uh, uh, Arvind and James. Yeah, and it was th- one of the first ever uh, fan projects of Dirk Gently to get the official blessing from, uh, you know, the creator Douglas Adams. So uh, yeah, so so that's that is interesting. It sort of gives hope for people making fan projects today, even though you know the show is technically in a sort of state of limbo at the moment. The in the way that kind of makes fan projects more important than ever, in my view. It sort of reminds me of when Doctor Who was cancelled and it was basically fan projects that kept it alive until it was revived uh, in 2005, I think. So I guess we move on to the last bit that we had to cover, which was uh, Sam and Adele, which was released uh, posthumously after Douglas's untimely F in 2001, which released the following year. The main thing that interests us is the, an unfinished uh, Dirk Gently story. I think it says at the start of the book, the person who sort of compiled all the stuff in it together, because it's not just that story. There's lots of... um, Here we go. Conceived as a third Dirk Gently novel, Douglas's novel in progress began life as a spoon too short and was described as such in his files until August 1993. From this point forward, Folders read the novel as The Salmon of Doubt. So he must have been working on it probably ever since he finished um, Long Dark Tea Time in 88. And so his file, all the folders in his career fall into three categories. From oldest to most recent, they are The Old Salmon, The Salmon of Doubt, and LA slash Rhino slash Ranting Man. Reading through these various sections, I decided for the purposes of this book, Douglas would be best said if I stitched together the strongest material, regardless of when it was written, much as I might have proposed doing where he's still alive. So from The Old Salmon, I reinstated what is now the first chapter on Dave Land. The following six chapters come from the second and longest continuous version, The Salmon of Doubt. Then with an eye to keeping the story clear, I dropped in two of his three most recent chapters from LA slash Rhino slash Ranting Manor, which became chapters eight and nine. For chapter 10, I went back to the last chapter from The Salmon of Doubt and then concluded with the final chapter from Douglas's most recent work from LA Rhino Ranting Manor. To give the reader a sense of what Douglas planned for the rest of the novel, I preceded all this with a fax from Douglas to his London editor, Sue Freestone, who worked closely with Douglas on his books from the very first one. So yeah, that's the sort of gist of what's been compiled here. But I can read out the facts, which is effectively acts as Douglas's own blurb for the book. Because for the other books, I sort of made up my own blurb. But for this, because it's <laughs> unfinished, I think I'll just read this just for interest. So the plot, yeah, it goes fussily. Dirk Gently, hired by someone he never meets to do a job that is never specified, starts following people at random. His investigations lead him to Los Angeles, through the nasal membranes of a rhinoceros, to a distant future dominated by estate agents and heavily armed kangaroos. Jokes, lightly poached fish, and the emergent properties of complex systems form the background to Dirk Gently's most baffling and incomprehensible case. So baffling and incomprehensible that there is no ending. (laughs) So, um, I, I decided that last, yes. that's not really in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there was inevitably going to be a sad element to this book, and that it was something that Douglas meant to finish. He died before getting the chance. 
do you get the sense that the material feels a little bit unpolished? Because even with a long dark tea time, where I thought it wasn't quite as good as the original book, personally, I know you disagree with me on that a little bit, but um, <laughs> I could still appreciate that it was polished material. This feels very unpolished to me. And to go back to Hitchhikers as an anecdote, in the third Hitchhiker novel, uh, where uh, Arthur wakes up on prehistoric Earth, uh, I, I recall reading at some point that you know, that, that opening sentence, you know, the sound of Arthur's scream was him remembering that he was you know, uh, living in a cave in Islington and there wasn't a bus due for four million years. So that, that one sentence apparently was the edited down version of multiple pages of introduction. Yeah. And that's what that's what the first few chapters of Salmon of Doubt feels like. It it feels like this long rambling, I'm just you know, trying to get a handle on the characters again and work out what I'm gonna do and you know, let's let's just write some dialogue between the characters while I'm working it out. And it feels like stuff that would have been reduced and condensed down to a couple of core elements and uh, and not ramble on anywhere near as much. And it's not that it wasn't enjoyable to read, but or actually I listened to it. Uh, Simon Jones uh, did a read-through of it. So I listened to Salmon of Doubt as read by the voice of uh, Arthur Dent, which was a little bit odd. Well, it's a bit odd because he reads the other, book, the other parts of the book, which are more either interviews and compilations of stuff about Douglas or forwards by Stephen Fry and other people. And... Uh... Yeah. And that's a bit I, weird. I, and, and, I, and I skipped all those. I just, I just went right into the, listening to the Salmon of Doubt bit. But yeah, I, I think what we got was 10 chapters of introduction that should have been polished down to maybe two or three. You know, if, if Dave Land ends up being part of the plot, then the Dave Land chapter, you know, it maybe would be the chapter. Uh, you know, the Ranting Manor and Rhino is maybe worth a chapter. And Dirk's plot background is only a small part of what we get. Uh, you know, they're being hired by somebody and getting an income, following people and ending up being tricked to end up in the US. It's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea no, at all. Yeah, yeah. The, the ideas are good. And, and that's the thing. It, the ideas are good. And it's. I think there's a lot of exploring ways around the ideas that, it, that polishing it would have removed the poorer ways of exploring the idea and we would have been left with the really quality stuff um, yeah. but but one of the things that i was thinking uh and this is where knowing when it was written uh and the detail that i want i don't think we know or possibly even can know uh but one of the things that i noticed was uh dirk gently's self-discovery early bit you know, he's talking to his former secretary and she's saying yeah yeah your, your, your bills you never open them and he's like i don't and she's like no you know, and you know, he's like, you know, pulls out his book and writes notes. And you know, a bit later, you know, he makes a note that he's you know, uh, a control freak and because he needs to be in control of a situation. And I was wondering if that was Douglas's critique of Michael Bywater after they'd had their falling out over the authorship of Starship Titanic. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and that's where, and, I'm, and I got to wondering, is that why Douglas Adams couldn't get a grip on the uh, Dirk Gently character for this book because he would, had based it off his friend Michael Bywater and at that point they were no longer friends. Um, or am I reading too much into it? I don't, honestly don't know. I, I want to stress I'm not, I'm not wanting to read too much into it, but it was a thought that occurred to me that it seemed like quite harsh criticism of Dirk Gently in that opening sequence and then knowing that 
Douglas had said that he wasn't able to get a handle on the Dirk Gently character and maybe it would work better as a hitchhiker novel instead. And mm. yeah, just like, okay, well, is it is it linked? I don't know. That's an interesting idea. I want to have not really thought about it. Michael Bioda seems to be the through line for this, but um, <laughs> Douglas sort of started out because obviously he started out making Macduff as sort of an analog for him, and then in Long Dark Tea Time, there is no Macduff, so I think Dirk takes on a few more characteristics of Douglas. He already had a few of them, but he takes on a lot more of Douglas's own characteristics in Long Dark Tea Time. At least that was my interpretation anyway. And then in this, I think, like you say, maybe he's been a bit conflicted between the two, so he has him sort of criticising the Michael Bywater parts of himself. Well, it's becoming Could even be. more Douglas. Well, not, not necessarily. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Because I think he's still recognizably the same character. There's still enough of yeah. bywaterness in him, I think. I think with uh, the first novel, uh, Dirk Gindley's Holistic Detective Agency, that I think Dirk in that novel was quite a um, uh, not well rounded character. He was almost a trope in that regard. That, yeah, the, the Dirk character was the detective who believes that everything's connected and follows, you know, apparently random leads and makes these wildly illogical but when explained they turn out to be logical from a certain point of view leaps of logic and ends up solving the case for the subsequent novels you know he's had to expand the character and you know maybe he didn't have a complete completely clear idea of where he thought the character should be going uh and you know was still able to wing it for tea time but by the time it came to salmon of doubt it was you know stretching the making the character up as he goes along a little bit too far. Yeah, I feel in the book they do. I I think it's, uh, what's her name? Uh, we, it was one you couldn't remember from Long Dark Tea Time, was it? Uh, Kate Shester. And, and there's sort of hints yes. about her maybe, maybe not having a relationship with four or whatever at this point now. But they're sort of seeing each other. And, and uh, it's weird that they brought these characters back because it definitely feels more like a, a postscript to Tea Time, especially the early chapters. Very yeah, it's 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 very explicitly you know, takes takes place only a few weeks after the end of tea time, and and that's yeah. again that I wonder if that was a deliberate uh, continuation of the plot, or if that was just Douglas's way of trying to get back into the characters. Like, well, what happened after this last bit? That you know, when we last saw them, they were here. What's the very next thing? And using that as his own writing hook, that in future revisions may have ended up being removed. Uh, because it ends up not being necessary. Uh, yeah. Again, it's it's hard to say. One thing I did yeah. like was um, uh, the, the, I think there's a line in it where Dirk is talking about uh, one of the things that carry overs from Tea Time, which is that there's a massive hole I think in the side of his, his wall where an eagle turned back into a jet fighter and smashed through, <laughs> and he yes. still hasn't got it fixed yet. <laughs> so he just like I'll just done out with a bunch of duct tape. It's a bit cold, but you know I'll, I'll manage <laughs> or something. It's, it's words to that effect, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and that that was very much the uh, probably the most obvious point that sets it as only a few weeks after the end of Tea Time. Another point that also sticks out to me is um, a convers- that's quite funny was the conversation that Dirk has with the taxi driver when he's uh, following someone because he tells the taxi driver to follow that cab where the person he's following is in and they, the taxi driver seems to be taken aback by this and has a long conversation about how you always hear that in the movies, but you never have a taxi driver actually be told to follow that cab. Yeah. <laughs> and how he he always just assumes that because he never gets asked it, everyone else is following him. 
<laughs> all the other taxi drivers are following him. That very much feels like uh, Douglas's own voice. That seems like the sort of observation that Douglas would have made that what yeah. we see on TV doesn't match reality because we're seeing a selected version. But if you were to treat that as your expectations, you'd be disappointed or you'd be led to weirdly illogical conclusions via a completely logical methodology. If Salmon of Doubt had ever been completed uh, into a book and then adapted to a TV series and Douglas still alive and that scene still be in it, I think that the cabbie should have been played by Douglas Adams, just to, <laughs> just to stretch that quite a bit. Can I ask you a difficult question? Sure. How would he finish his book? <laughs> I've got no idea of where plot-wise it could have gone. Because I think because it feels like a lot of introduction, we're introduced to... Uh, we're reintroduced to Dirk with a little bit more depth, as we've just been saying. We're introduced to Ranting Manor and we're int introduced to the Rhino. And I think the introduction to the Rhino, uh, just a tangent on that for a moment, is fascinating because it's quite a long exploration of the Rhino's perception of the world, which was clearly something that Douglas had been thinking about um, well, last chance since, to see, yeah. Yeah, since Last Chance to See, but which had been talked about in the South Bank show that we were talking about. There's a sequence in that of a couple of minutes where Douglas talks about rhinoceroses would not perceive the world through vision and tiny segments of, of now they perceive the world through a sense of smell with long and wide sections of now. Slices um, of time. That's how they perceive slices, it. Yeah, slices of time and, and versus long long wide smears of time and and that was redone in salmon of doubt uh very much felt like just a uh, the next revision of exactly the same idea uh but in terms of where the novel would go you know we've really only got those introductions uh and then in the in that blurb it mentions many more things that have yet to be introduced so i, I that blurb does feel like douglas had an overall plot in mind uh, but he certainly wasn't giving it away in that blurb and uh, hadn't yet introduced all the all the moving parts for the plot. So yeah. I get the feeling he had a destination in mind, but he wasn't quite sure how to get from to and from those separate destinations. Yeah, um, I did think it was interesting that he had Dirk uh, travel to America, which is where Douglas himself was spending a lot of time with uh, the creation of the Hitchhiker movie. Uh, or attempting to get it created at the time. If you look at Hitchhikers, you know, the, the first Hitchhiker book was written based off the idea of Douglas being a penniless hitchhiker. The first book was a massive success, and suddenly he had lots of money and was going out to restaurants. And what's the second book? The second book is you know, Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And then the third book, we get Bistromathics, and you know, a, a whole joke based around fancy restaurants. And that very much, you, know, you can see where that was influenced by Douglas's position in your know, financial position in life. And in this same regard, we get Dirk is in Islington and then Douglas is spending a lot of time in the US and suddenly Dirk is spending a lot of time in the US because that's where Douglas is now observing the world and you're know, seeing weirdnesses and uh, making funny observations. And he, you know, he needs that character to be where he is for those observations to be put into print and make sense. Yeah, I, I, I thought his relationship with money and how it changes over the years is sort of quite interesting and how it informs his perspective of the world as, as seen yeah. through the books. The one the final question I have to say is, um, do you see it as more of an optional adventure, like you don't have to read it? I, I think it depends on what you take away from the first two novels. If, if you enjoy the first two novels for the plot, 
and the Dirk Gently character is secondary, then there's no reason to read Sam of the Doubt. If after the first two novels you're in a position of that Dirk Gently character is awesome, what else happens to that guy? Then absolutely Salmon of Doubt is essential. It's a plot versus character thing. So yeah, I, for, for my taste, I would recommend Salmon of Doubt as something that you read if you really find yourself caring about Dirk Gently, the character. So a completionist then? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I'm a completionist, so yeah. <laughs> I, read it for that. I read it for that regard. Uh, yeah. But yeah, for, for the more casual fan, you know, the, the first two Dirk Gently novels, uh, I recommend to Douglas Adams and sci-fi fans and just you know, humans in general. <laughs> I think that pretty much wraps up the 90s Dirk then. So we better just give people our have details on how to contact us. I am at Edward J. Hunter on Twitter, but you can also contact the podcast through dirtgentlypodcast.wordpress.com. What about you? Um, you have one as well. <laughs> and I'm Nemo Thorks, uh, and I'm on Twitter as Subether. There's an underscore between the sub and the ether, and the ether has no E. S-U-B underscore E-T-H-R. Our other podcast member, uh, Dalek, his, uh, he owns the Douglas Adams subreddit, which is r slash Douglas Adams, which is uh, where yes. we occasionally hang out and post these podcasts. You're probably <laughs> listening from there right now, in which case, hello. The, uh, the Douglas Adams uh, subreddit has a linked uh, Douglas Adams Discord server as well, uh, which goes by the same name. We did get some uh, nice fan mail from uh, Morgan Mushroom, who runs the Frankenpod, which is a gothic literature podcast, and she said some... She was very complimentary of uh, this podcast, so uh, thanks. And next time we'll be doing the uh, radio series that aired on BBC4 in 2007-2008. So, um, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Cheerio. Bye. Bye Bye-bye now.